Hello, everybody, and welcome to a Tuesday evening edition of Narrative Live. It's a very special edition, recalling a moment of truth tonight. Very glad to have Olga Lautman here, who's the host of the very, very successful Kremlin Files and also a senior fellow at SIPA. How are you, Olga? Nice to see you. Hi, thank you for having me. So great to have you here. And Ken Harbo, who's the former Democratic candidate, amongst other things, for 2018. I didn't realize that about you, Ken. But you're also a former U.S. Navy pilot and also the host of your own podcast. Tell everyone the name. Uh, Burn the Boats. Thanks, Zev. It's great to be here. And, uh, you know, it's great to have two such enlightened people. You know, Ken has the military background. Olga, you have a lot of the geopolitical background that we're talking about tonight. And they all are sort of colliding, I should say, in this moment of truth. You know, we've certainly seen a lot of activity on the, on the uh, battlefront over the last 21 days now. Uh, but a lot of the action to me seemed to be taking place off the battlefield in the last few days. Firstly, uh, Naftali Bennett announcing yesterday that Israel would in fact adhere to the Western sanctions. In fact, in doing so, blocking the oligarchs' ability to launder money through the state of Israel and uh, causing them a real situation, which uh, can't be a very, very good thing for Vladimir Putin. And then, uh, you know, the other big meeting is, was the Sullivan meeting that took place in Rome. This is a national security advisor taking place with the Chinese. And again, a confrontation there about whether the Chinese would be on Russia's side in terms of supporting them with weapons or whether they would, you know, stay true to the West, if they ever were true to the West, you know, and it seems like they've taken that message from the White House and from Sullivan quite seriously. But we're still in the early hours of that. We'll see if China does, in fact, stay out of this uh, war. But let's begin with what's going on right now in Kiev, because the situation is still tense. I mean, there's still an attempt to besiege the city. Russian forces are beginning to make an approach, as they have been, slowly um, over the last 21 days. And yet tonight there's, for the first time, or maybe the second time, a 35-hour curfew that's being imposed on the residents of Kiev. So Ken, talk to us a little bit about the potential here for the Russians to actually succeed in any way. It seems very unlikely to me that they'll be able to achieve their target of taking Kiev. Well, even if they achieve some limited tactical success, I think we have to ask, to what end? The Ukrainians have already demonstrated that they will not be governed by a Russian occupation force. So even if the Russian military does pummel Kiev into submission, even if they are somehow able to manage to get tanks into the center of Kiev, what does it really accomplish them? Obviously, thousands upon thousands of Ukrainians will die in the process. They will take many thousands of Russian soldiers with them. But what is the Russian occupation going to do with an occupied Kiev? The Ukrainian government will almost certainly relocate and continue to fight as long as they have fight left, which looks like it would be to the end. It certainly does seem like it's to the end. Olga, what's your sense of where these where this is going? It does feel like Putin's out of options here. He seems to be running out of supplies, running out of uh, willing servicemen, and also just as an untenable situation where he can't take these key strategic cities like Mariupol, Odessa, and of course, Kiev. Well, I mean, we clearly see Putin's military strategy of uh, seizing key cities in you know, less than a week and being welcomed with open arms uh, did not happen. Did not happen. <laughs> Will not happen. Even if they pull in tanks, 
besides the government, you have every single civilian who will fight mm -hmm. to the end. I mean, this goes back. This is not just, you know, a new conflict. Russia's been at war in Ukraine for eight years. And I mean, there's a century history, you know, going back to Stalin and ever since. So my concern is that as Putin sees, you know, the heavy losses are happening, we see him also turning it into more of terrorist activities. As today we heard in Mariupol that they seized the hospital and are holding the people inside the hospital hospital hostage. And we see them now specifically targeting civilians. I mean, this is the where the strategy changed from day one and two, where they were targeting military. Now they're specifically targeting and trying to decimate every single city, every single block, every single school, every single church in Ukraine. The strategy, or if you can call it a strategy, because really it's just slaughter, of attacking citizens is unthinkable for the world, and it's so atrocious. Is this a red line that the United States and NATO can't afford to let Putin cross, that if he goes into these uh, hostage-taking situations and this indiscriminate <clears throat> bombings of places like Kiev, which is, you know are different from Mariupol in some ways, but you know, it's still a city, of course, but is this a red line that we're approaching when NATO must step in? And I guess it, it depends, Zev, on what you mean by red line and what the counter action would be. I mean, we have declared red lines in the past and have not enforced them. That situation was against a an adversary, an enemy that did not have nuclear weapons. I think that changes the calculation. And you already see Putin uh, and his propaganda apparatus setting the stage for some type of mass casualty attack, Th this whole misinformation campaign around bioweapons facilities is setting the stage for something incredibly ominous, I fear. It does feel like that. It's very, very, very scary. It's again to this point of, is there a way for the United States or NATO to step in in any way, Olga? Do you think that there's an opening for that with these civilian deaths or with a more uh, determined attack on Kiev? Do you think that this might be an opportunity for the world and for Biden to change these uh, sort of troops on the ground, no pilots in the sky strategy? Well, I mean, I personally think I understand the fear of, you know, trying to avoid World War Three and trying to avoid confrontation with nuclear power. But I mean, first, the tactics we're seeing in Ukraine right now, this is how Russia fights wars. I mean, this is exactly what they've done in Syria. This is what they did in Chechnya. And as I always, always remind people, Putin came to power by blowing up apartment buildings inside of Russia, killing over 300 civilians in order to go into Chechnya. And I mean, Petrushev, who was at the time head of FSB, who organized the campaign, is now part of the national security strategy and today meeting with um, Kadyrov. So, I mean, this is how they fight wars. This is what they've done. The difference here is that it is such, a, you know, whereas in Syria, Assad had invited Russia in. Here, they, no one invited them into Ukraine. They just came in and now they are destroying, like I said, block by block. And yes, we're all focused on Kiev, but you have Mariupol that is now almost two weeks under siege with Russian forces surrounding it, and they are cut off from food, medicine, electric, 
heat and it is extremely brutal conditions there. And we are now, you know, I mean, that's a city of close to 400,000 people and there is no way to know what is happening on the ground. I mean, there are reports that there was a mass grave and hundreds were put into the mass grave. There are other reports that 2,500 people are dead, but that in itself is a crisis. And that is the same city that Russia bombed a a maternity uh, hospital, uh, killing one pregnant woman and her unborn child. The other pregnant woman we saw in the picture, uh, luckily, you know, uh, is okay and delivered her child the other day. So the situation across is horrendous. And unfortunately, I don't see U.S. or NATO stepping in. I mean, or anyone and U.N. maybe can even create humanitarian corridors that they can monitor. And even with that, you know, Russia agreed to a humanitarian corridor and they bomb the corridor, specifically targeting people who are evacuating from these cities under siege. Mm. So absolutely, I mean, someone, just, needs to- someone needs to step in. I want to show you some images that yeah. have happened Um you know, these are this is some of the images. This is last night and then night before in areas of um, of Kiev. You know, these are apartment buildings. Let's listen to a little bit of the sound here if we can. This is just on the outskirts of Kiev. I mean, Olga, this is not... Uh, let's listen to these these terrible or, or, or deal that these people have to go through. It's shocking that in this day and age we're seeing this. Absolutely. And I mean, and the humanitarian crisis, we've had close to now, what, 3 million Ukrainians who have evacuated Ukraine. And then you have, you know, millions inside Ukraine displaced. I mean, this is a nightmare and it's not safe to travel anywhere. You know, people who are trapped in cities are scared to leave the cities if they even have a chance. Because, you know, a a bomb by Russia can just fall on your car or you know, along the path on the train. So, I mean, this is, these are, this is what's happening in every single city right now across Ukraine. It's a, you know, Ken, you've been a pilot, you've been in these situations. Hopefully you haven't been in these exact situations. They're quite horrific, but you know, um, have you ever seen anything like this? I mean, this is pictures of Mariupol. This isn't, look at this giant bomb that's just gone off in this apartment building over here. You're looking at such incredible devastation on the city that it's, 
you know, going on for 21 days now, it's unthinkable. It's really a humanitarian crisis of mammoth proportions. Yeah, honestly, parts of what I'm seeing uh, look like Kabul after 20 years of war. Uh, and I, I did spend time on the ground in Afghanistan. But Olga is absolutely right. This is how Russia wages war. We have seen this before. We saw what they did to Grozny. We saw what they did to Aleppo. And it feels now like they are on that fallback plan. The uh, decapitation strikes didn't work. The blitzkrieg didn't work. And now it seems all they have left is this desperation tactic of long range artillery and missile strikes almost indiscriminately fired at population centers. It is nothing short of a terror campaign. It's a genocide, really. I mean, it's beyond a terror campaign because, you know, this is what they're intending for Kiev. I mean, this is not something the world could stomach. I mean, not that they could stomach it up to now, but we seem to have done that. But it seems like, you know, the city of Kiev is a special city. It's historically significant. It has, uh, it is a huge place because the president is there. President Zelensky is there. It is the, the area that they are most trying to get to. And if they are tending to pummel that city into the ground like this and pulverize it into nothing, certainly that is a point where the United States and NATO has to do something because this is not a war that Russia appears to be winning. This is a war that Russia appears to be losing and causing genocide on the way out. Absolutely. I mean, we see as the more losses their military takes and, you know, and I am very happy to, to see at least now that the world understands that their military that everyone has made into such a big deal can't even conduct campaigns. This is how they conduct campaigns. They don't know how to fight. They don't have any integrity. They don't, you know, try to avoid civilian centers opposite. They go for civilian centers as we see all these images. And I mean, my concern is that I have been warning for a long time about this, and I've said also that Putin is not going to stop here. If he is to succeed here and to hold us back because of his you know, nuclear threats, what happens with Poland? What happens with the Baltics that he's been you know, flaunting over the years? And besides Putin's strategy of reinstating Soviet territorial laws, he's obsessed with proving that NATO will never trigger Article 5 to protect an Eastern European country. So, I mean, I think we need to prepare for that and to prepare for all the scenarios and honestly provide everything we can for Ukraine right now, because this is incredible. It's it's. These seeds are really harrowing. And, you know, the thing is, you're, you're making such a good point here. This is not Putin against Ukraine. This is Putin against the West. This is Putin against everything that the West stands for. And it's a very deliberate war that they're engaging in. It's not, you know, when you listen to the Russian propaganda and, you, you know, you don't take everything they say for granted. But we should take their spoken goals for granted. And those spoken goals are that they want to destroy the West. I mean, they're not just, they're not talking about just Ukraine. They are opposed to everything that the West stands for. And they tend to do whatever it is they're doing to Ukraine, to many other states on their border. And who knows where it stops? I mean, Ken, you've, you mentioned this earlier on, that there's really no point where we know that they could stop. They could carry on all the way to the United States. They could carry on to any parts of the world, really. Well, I think they might be militarily limited in that regard, given what we have seen of their military over the last three weeks. But I think their ambition stretches that far. You only need to listen to the pronouncements coming from the Kremlin. And if you take them at their word, 
definitely Ukraine is just the beginning, which is why, uh, and I, I think I'm reiterating your point, Sev, but it is why the fight for Kyiv and the fight for Ukraine more broadly is really a fight for Western democracy. And by Western, I mean the liberal international order. I include any peace-loving, freedom-loving country anywhere in the world. Their mm-hmm. fight is in Ukraine right now. Absolutely. All our futures are there. I mentioned earlier on that this is a moment of truth for two leaders. One is Naftali Bennett, who's the Israeli prime minister, who's done an interesting thing. You know, it's very much a sharp departure from his predecessor, Bibi Netanyahu, in that they all adhere to the Western sanctions and by so doing, block off the oligarchs' ability to funnel money out of their bank accounts through Israel to other parts of the world. Olga, that's a, a significant move, isn't it? Absolutely. And I mean, we immediately saw action on it because Abramovich, who was sanctioned, you know, quickly jumped on a plane out of Israel to Turkey and then off to Moscow. So, I mean, we saw how that was like an instant uh, you saw of what can happen and how serious they're taking it. And all the oligarchs, in fact, many of them have homes in uh, Israel and uh, all of them were escaping to Israel. It doesn't seem like they're going to be finding a safe refuge there. So they are probably all going back to Russia where the ruble is worth much less than it was before. And of course, this money isn't their money per se. It is theirs, but it's also money that they're hiding away from Putin and others. It seems to me it's not just their, and of course, it's none of their money, money stolen from the Russians originally. Let's talk a little bit then about the other moment of truth, which I think is very significant as well, is is Xi. I mean, here comes, you know, so-called Putin's best friend. You know, potentially he was approached recently to sell some weapons, some drones to Putin. Apparently that was agreed to, but never actually turned into a contract. However, you know, Xi's in an interesting position here because he could stay with Putin's best friend and sink you know, into the abyss that um, Vladimir Putin has built for him and you know, turn into the pariah states of the world. Or he could actually do a very unusual thing for him and actually side with the West and convince Putin to stop this war. You know, if there's one person in the world I think that could stop this war, it's Xi. I mean, he has all the economic levers against Russia right now. And without Xi's backing, Putin has nobody in the globe who could, who could help him. How much pressure do you think needs to be applied in that regard to Xi and to insist that the Chinese move towards a the place where we thought they were, which is you know more enlightened and more enveloping of the of the liberal order? Well, Zev, I think you're right partly about Xi and the motivation there. They want a stable world order more than anything. I think they realize they have picked the wrong side, at least in in the broad historical sense, in siding with Russia. Uh, They don't have a lot to gain or, frankly, anything to gain at this point, even should Putin succeed. And everyone is looking at this example, of course, as a portent for uh, for Taiwan and China's own expansionist ambitions, depending on how you read it. But on the other hand, I am not convinced that there is really any economic lever at this point that would sway Putin. I fear that his ambition is too vast, that his ego is too far gone, that he is willing to put his own people through absolute hell in order to save his own pride and remain in power. And I don't know that the economic lever will succeed. 
And to add to that, I mean, look, historically, uh, Soviet leaders have no problem, you know, killing their own in mass numbers. And, you know, as people here in the West with the Western mindset were concerned, oh, Putin's going to send soldiers back in body bags. You know, I was like, they don't care if, you know, 300,000 soldiers die. Um, and then you saw the reports of the mobile crematoriums following to dispose of the bodies. I mean, there is pressure inside of Russia um, building because I follow Russian news and I follow, you know, I, I talk with people there. But I don't think it is enough right now to get rid of Putin. It doesn't cause significant threat. And Putin will never back down. I mean, in this case, not G, not anybody will be able to stop Putin because one of the most important things for a Russian leader is to go into the Russian history books with some kind of a success. And there is absolutely no way Putin will go into a Russian history book showing that he backed down to NATO or United States. Is that that you think it's just the final thing? He's that he's got to leave a legacy behind that is that is expansionist. Otherwise, he fails. That's absolutely how it's been the past, you know, several <laughs> few centuries. I mean, this is how they are. This is, I mean, we only had one, I don't know, semi-normal uh, president, and that was Yeltsin, and, and he was a drunk. So, I mean. <laughs> well, you're painting the situation then that, you know, the Ukrainians are just sitting ducks then in that case. You know, if there's, if he will not stop under any circumstances and NATO won't interfere, that's not a very good real outcome there that we can live with ultimately. So what do you think can be done and what kind of pressure levers can be applied to the United States or or NATO countries to to change or to consider alternatives because it doesn't seem like they're interested in entering this third you know third world war obviously but it might be necessary to intervene in some ways to protect the ukrainians from on a humanitarian level zev i would submit that the ukrainians are doing an historic and heroic job on the battlefield and that the end of this will come when the russian military is defeated on the battlefield. I think that reality will be the only one that Putin cannot escape or propagandize his way out of. Now, in terms of facilitating that, I think we have to acknowledge that a lot is happening that we probably don't know about. Some things are happening that we do know about, such as the massive shipments of stingers and javelins and other anti-tank missiles, the sharing of intelligence. Those are all certainly steps in the right direction. And frankly, in any other conflict, they would be seen as massive overreaches. They would be seen as acts of war. So I think credit belongs where credit is due. But I still think given the stakes, given the fact that democracy itself is on the line, we should be doing even more. Tomorrow, Zelensky will be talking to the Congress in a televised address at 9 a.m. Uh, Olga, do you have a sense of what he's going to be saying and what he should be saying to you? What would you like to hear him say? I think he's going to continue asking for help and ask, you know, the world how how long can you watch these images of innocent, you know, elderly and children and women being slaughtered without stepping in and doing more and, you know, covering at least the skies to prevent this? I think this is 
the message he's been putting out. This is what every single Ukrainian I've talked to wants. I mean, they just want protection from the sky. It will be hard to give that. And, you know, unfortunately, right now, U.S. and NATO are very against it. But I mean, there has to be maybe a limited way to do it, maybe partnering with U.N. or doing, you know, providing some kind of protection. I heard someone talk about safe zones this morning as one idea that, you know, that they can maybe approach and, and this, the uncontested areas, see if there's a way for them to at least secure those and let the fighting go on in the, in the still the contested areas. But even I mean, that sounds too limited and too little too late. You spoke about the heroic Ukrainians and how they're fighting. I want to show you some video and maybe you know, assume, even though you're a pilot and this is happening on the ground in tanks, that can, you might be able to analyze this for us. And I'm sure it's throw it at you without showing it to you first. This is them uh, in Mariupol confronting Russian tanks. So I gather they're getting overhead visuals from a drone. Yeah, I, I've seen this clip. My understanding is that this is a, a 30 millimeter cannon on a Ukrainian vehicle. Uh, and this is for... Um, mounted warfare pretty close quarters. If you look carefully at this clip, there are Russian boots underneath that tank. Uh, right. These aren't tanks just sitting there in the open having been abandoned. This is active combat. Uh, and I think this goes to my earlier point about the heroism of Ukrainians defending on their turf. And that is something that any tactician will tell you uh, the defender has the edge. Even if outgunned, outresourced, defending your own land, fighting for your families gives you an incalculable advantage, especially when you compare it to the invader. And in this case, the invader, in many reported instances, is laying down his weapons, is puncturing gas tanks so that their vehicles won't move anymore, is phoning home, telling their parents, I wasn't even told we were going to war. I was told this was a training exercise. That is not a very formidable opponent, even in massive numbers. It's just a lot more targets for the Ukrainians. The other thing that it really highlights is that, you know, how much of a better ideology democracy and freedom is. I mean, it's certainly, if you're looking at, you know, what might be the edge that the Ukrainians have is that they're fighting for something they really want, which is freedom. And, you know, the alternative, and you see it in the troops on the other side who are just unmotivated, the low morale, starving, not getting paid, not even interested in entering this war, not even aware that they're in a war. It shows such a stark contrast between these two ideologies that are clashing in the world right now and shows you which one is just preferable by, you know, it's pretty obvious once you look at it this way. Yeah, I hope the message yeah. that I really hope, first of all, that the Ukrainians get more help, that they are victorious on the battlefield, but then that the message is received loud and clear around the world to anyone who might consider invading Taiwan, for example, or to Putin and his cronies who, who see Estonia and Latvia and Lithuania and Poland as their next targets, that it is not going to be an easy fight. Then when people are fighting for what they truly believe in, they will fight to the end. 
I just wanted to add, look, this struggle for freedom has gone on for decades in Ukraine. In 2004, Yanukovych, Putin's puppet, rigged an election. Ukrainians came and had an orange revolution, you know, at the expense that the pro-Western candidate who then became president was poisoned. Then in 2013, you had Yanukovych, who did manage to get into power and, you know, with the help of Paul Manafort, Paul Manafort was a lot of, was responsible for a lot in Ukraine. Same tactics as in U.S. But Ukrainians came and had another revolution and kicked Yanukovych out, and you know he fled to the safety of Russian security services, where he's living to this day. So Ukrainians will fight, and you know no one believed me when I said Ukrainians will do everything to defend their land. I spoke to my family. I have family in Ukraine in three cities. I spoke to them, giving them warnings because I was, I knew what was coming. I've been tracking this for a year. I've been on Twitter warning about it, writing about it, and they're like, "No, we're going to wipe the streets with Russian dogs." You know, this is how they feel. They're not going to, you know, abandon only obviously the women and children. They wanted to get out of safety in order to be able to fight better and not to worry that their children are in danger. But this is the mentality. They will fight, and they will fight with whatever they have. Whether they have sophisticated weapons, whether they have, you know, homemade weapons, and that's the difference. Whereas Russians are there, and I mean, they were on the border. There was a COVID breakout for months while they were waiting for this invasion, and I mean, you see, like they are just so logistically disorganized. The only thing they know how to do is drop bombs and just kill, you know, blow up buildings. That's it. You know, earlier on today, I had a chance to speak to a friend of ours on the show, Yevgen Fuchenko, who runs the organization StopFake.org, which is a disinformation organization in Ukraine. He was in Kiev. He got out and uh, is now staying somewhere else. And we won't reveal the location. But, you know, we talked to him a little bit about the role he's had in informing the world about all these disinformation tactics and a few other important factors. I don't have the whole interview here, but I do want to play a little bit of that. So here's Yevgen Fuchenko. Very impressive. I mean, the Ukrainian people have shown uh, the world a lot about themselves, certainly their fighting spirit in resisting the Russian invasion. But as you point out, this information game that you've been, I don't call it a game because it's actually deadly serious, of course, but the, the disinformation war has been something that you've been fighting for many years and in fact have led the world because you've been on the forefront of fighting disinformation of this type, you know, the Russian variety for many, many years. And certainly well before we started dealing with it in the United States, in 2016 or 2015, when Donald Trump was elected, you had already been through this for quite a few years and blazed a trail for all of us. And now I think you're seeing, and we're all seeing, that the things that you learned and the things that you've taught the rest of the world really work. I mean, really disarming narratives before they take hold is very effective. It really can take the, the bluster out of so much of the disinformation. Uh, yeah, exactly. So we've been looking into this problem for the last eight years, and uh, we, we mapped all main Russian narratives. We, we know their playbook, and they are operating according to this playbook. There is nothing new. We learn nothing new. They just uh, escalated when the incursion started on February 24th, but they still use the same narratives they created for the last eight years. And... Uh, we know how it works, and we again predicted all those things. And we, I wish the world would uh, 
listen more careful to what we were saying that you really need to take uh, Russian disinformation literally. So if they are saying we're going to invade Ukraine, you might uh, guess that they really intend to do so. And uh, as I was uh, and my colleagues were watching Russian TV shows and I was publishing different snapshots of what they are discussing on Twitter. Uh, usually I did not see a lot of response to that, even though they've been discussing all those things they are doing right now in details, and they actually had this plan to invade and annihilate Ukraine for many, many years, as well as now they're discussing how they just would uh, move to other parts of Europe. So for them, Ukraine is just not the final destination. And they are, again, very, very serious about that. And uh, that's why it's very important to look in those narratives. And as I said, sometimes you just need to take them literally. It's a very good point you're making. You know, when you look at the Russian TV broadcasts, you know, they frame this in terms of a war against the West. They're not at war just with Ukraine. I mean, they're at war with the West. And, you know, it's apparent the West is aware that this is what they're doing. But I don't think the world is aware and, you know, people who are everyday people are as aware that this war, at least the intentions of this war, are to spread far beyond the borders of Ukraine, that they intend to basically defeat the West. That's their plan all the way down to them discussing last night about wanting Alaska back on Russia TV. I mean, this is not uncommon for them to talk about those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, that all entails a war against everybody in the world that is not dictatorship or not aligned to their interests. So what you're saying is very important. People should take what they're saying pretty seriously. Yeah, absolutely. So as I always was saying, it's uh, a war to annihilate Ukraine, but Ukraine would not be the final destination for this for one very simple reason. If they are not stopped, there is no reason for them to stop, actually. And they can invade other countries uh, for one very simple reason, because why not? And uh, so this is now their approach. And uh, there is a famous Russian saying that even if you are guilty seven times, you know, you respond, your responsibility is only once, you know. So that's uh, again right. about how they see the world around them. And again, they fight Ukraine right now. It doesn't mean that uh, this is more an uh, ontological fight with Western values and uh, Western institutions, because why they hate Ukraine so much? Because Ukraine embodies those Western values and Western institutions. And this is the biggest problem for Putin and his uh, military police dictatorship. You know, speaking of Russian television, and as we were just a second ago, the visual of the producer of uh, Russia's Channel One walking behind the anchor there with the no war poster, you know, really has been a very effective message that's sent around the entire planet very, very quickly. You know, as a means of combating disinformation, that is probably the most unique thing I've seen in quite a long time. I mean, to be able to storm a TV broadcast like that and, and send a message to Russians in that way, very effective. Uh, well, you know, probably it resonates with international audience and probably it might resonate to some extent with uh, Russian domestic audience if they would really watch it somehow. But Ukrainian audience was uh, pretty much unimpressed with that because this is the same person which was engaged in the information war against Ukraine for the last eight years. So on one hand, we can kind of cynically use this uh, situation to make more cracks within Russian society, and probably it might give some uh, push to, you know, some people 
leaving Russian media and departing from disinformation machine. But for Ukrainians, every Russian uh, basically is responsible for this war. And there can be no any situation with where there is some good Russian versus you know, bad Russian. So from Ukrainian point of view, it's uh, too little, too late. This person is responsible for working for this information machine. And she can do very different things, appealing uh, to, you know, different important messages, which probably a Russian audience uh, needs to hear right now about this war. There's a lot of resentment around NATO and uh, the United States acting not acting in terms of a no-fly zone or not acting uh, militarily inside the borders of Ukraine. And yet, you know, there is also this other, sort of I call it a new hybrid warfare, where we've got, you know, the military component on the one side, but you've also got this immediate sanctions component that has been led by the West and by the United States in particular. It's a hard balancing act for, uh, you know, Vladimir Zelensky, because he's going to be speaking to the House of Congress tomorrow in the joint session, but it is a difficult thing for him to try and maneuver around. What's the sense there on the ground? I mean, is it complete disheartenment with the United States because where are they and they should be there? Or is there an understanding that they are leading this other part of this war, this sanctions effort that is actually going to, at the end of the day, be a, an important factor in terms of determining who wins this war? Yeah, probably I would start answering this question by saying that both United States and uh, European partners are doing a lot. But as I said previously, sometimes it looks a little bit too late. And also people in Ukraine might be unhappy with the pace of what is happening, with the pace of sanctions, because we want to see the immediate uh, impact of that, like Russia immediately disappears, for example, from economic map. But again, we know that that's not going to happen because it doesn't work like that. And also, as President Zelensky said, we spend in a day more weapons that can give us in a week, you know. So that's definitely an appeal that Western partners should intensify our armament because mm. we have, as I said, a lot of people who are ready to fight, but we need to fight with something. We don't want just to fight with, with bare hands like those uh, civil society activists in occupied cities, which I mentioned, whom I mentioned previously. You know, we need armaments, we need, including not only a small one, but also there's a big one. And uh, we also need it more quickly. And uh, also, I understand the patience of people who are demanded to close the sky and do other things. And I understand also the reluctance on the other side, you know, but on the other hand, we have seen a lot of support, uh, a grassroots support coming in different countries where citizens already are saying to politicians that you really need to, you know, uh, do something about that. Because previously we've seen the opposite picture where Policymakers were much more eager to do something, and population in their countries were quite unwilling to help somewhere or to engage somewhere. And now we see this uh, pyramid absolutely flopped, you know, and we see this huge grassroots support. We need to help Ukraine. And uh, of course, if uh, it would happen earlier, it would uh, make this war shorter, it would make less, it less devastated, and uh, hopefully before this war ends, 
there will be still some Ukrainians alive, you know, and some cities and towns around, because if politicians in the West would look at this as a kind of normal political process with kind of diligence, as a kind of normal bureaucracy works, I understand it all that, you know, but definitely here we feel the urgency because uh, people are dying. And it's not about uh, traditional bureaucratic process. It's not about kind of process-oriented things. Here on the ground, we want to see results which are quick, which are effective, and uh, that would uh, make this war uh, shorter and less uh, bloody for Ukraine. And probably, if Ukraine would be strong enough to prevent the spilling off of this conflict to nearby countries, that would another outcome of this uh, urgency we're talking uh, right now about. Absolutely. Uh, you know, I have no doubt that Ukraine will be victorious in a very short time. It doesn't look to me like it, it can last for that much longer. It certainly seems like Russia's, you know, running out of resources and maybe in, you know, just a few days that could happen. But it seems that there's uh, unbreakable spirit amongst Ukrainians and you continue to fight with enormous courage and uh, we're all very grateful for the effort you're doing there, and hopefully we'll step up the efforts we're doing here to supply you with the right number of arms and to ensure that you've got all the support you need. And as well for the refugees, to so welcome them with open arms and to make sure that they're well looked after and in the rebuilding process of Ukraine, because I think that's going to be a big part of this too. Uh, so we wish you all the best, Yevgen Fachenko of StopFake.org. Thank you so much for being here tonight, and we'll hopefully be in touch with you again soon. Yeah, after the victory. Absolutely, after the victory. Well, it's so yeah, good to hear fine. from Yevgen in that uh, honest way that he's, you know, he's been a correspondent with us for a little bit of time here and we've seen him from before the war into now and there's such a different appearance in some ways, but it's still very much the same person. It's still as positive and remarkably engalvanized by this effort as everyone else in Ukraine seems to be. It's an unbelievable thing we're seeing, aren't we? Isn't it, Olga? Ukrainians are remarkable. Absolutely. And I mean, and you even see the humor of war. I mean, if I see another tractor trailer you know, wheeling away a Russian tank. I mean, so you see that as much uh, devastation as it's happening, they are also trying, you know, they're putting out the positivity with every win that they have. And they are having a lot of wins, you know. And he is right as far as with the disinformation. That's actually why I got involved in the United States in 2015, because we keep talking about this kinetic war, but Russia has launched a war against us and the West over the past decade. Mm -hmm. I mean, they have conducted the biggest cyber attacks against US, against you know Estonia in 2007, uh, Europe. They've interfered in every single election in Europe and in US, multiple. I mean, the division campaigns, disinformation campaigns, if you would have taken Russia out and somehow block all the bots, trolls, and disinformation, you wouldn't see these high COVID numbers. You wouldn't see all these anti-mask you know, mask and anti-vaccine protests and all the divisiveness in this country. That's what they do since KGB days and in Soviet Union, that they look for vulnerabilities and then try to blow it up. So they have been at war with us, you know? Absolutely. So Certainly since, you know... 2015 and Donald Trump, it's, it's been, you can't ignore it. You just, it's everywhere. The evidence is everywhere that the Russians have been at war with the West, certainly the United States in a very, very aggressive way. And all the polarization you talk about, it's the same tactics they used in Ukraine. And they're still very present in our day-to-day -day lives now in the United States, you know, so it's not so far away. They even have their own sites on Alaska, as I mentioned there. 
you know, you could sort of see they're, they're thinking their way through to how are we going to try to get Alaska and using all this uh, polarization as a way to get there. And, you know, it's helpful to them to have a polarized America. At the end of the day, that works to their ends, isn't it, Ken? Oh, absolutely. I would make a pretty clear distinction, though, between the information warfare that they've engaged in and the kinetic warfare that is being endured by the Ukrainians right now. What we have experienced does not come close to what the residents of, of Kyiv are experiencing. We need to remember that because I'll say it again, because it can't be said enough. They're fighting for us. Their fight is our fight, but they're the ones suffering. You know, to that end, there is a new ad campaign that's Strike Pack, one of the independent packs put out today, which I think really does capture the essence of what you guys are saying, and that not only are they fighting for us, but we are, in fact, have a very important decision coming up at this year in our elections in terms of who we vote for, because it does make a difference. And I want to play you this ad. It's, a, it's very effective. I think you'll appreciate the general messaging of it. This is genius. Putin is now saying it's independent. I said, how smart is that? And he's going to go in and be a peacekeeper. That's the strongest peace force. We could use that on our southern border. But wait a second. Why is it disloyal to side with Russia, but loyal to side with Ukraine? I think it's inarguable uh, that Vladimir Putin has been a stronger leader in his country than Barack Obama has been in this country. Uh, we had a kind of a really pathetic uh, display from the Ukrainian president uh, Zelensky earlier today. He was essentially imploring Vladimir Putin not to invade his country. really is the choice, isn't it, coming to November? I mean, this is, you know, you've got a Republican Party that's really been supportive of tyrants, Democrats that are supportive of freedom. You know, I am conflicted here because mm -hmm. we are experiencing this momentary, I fear, uh, fleeting feeling of unity around this issue. And I think we'll take it wherever we can get it. But I'm not going to forget when Tucker Carlson said he would rather side with Putin. I'm not going to forget the GOP Senate candidate who said she had more in common with Putin's Christian Russia than with Joe Biden. I'm not going to forget Donald Trump calling these invaders peacekeepers. Uh, that's not to say we won't take the votes in Congress when they're there to support larger military lethal aid packages for Ukraine. But accountability still matters to me. Accountability matters in politics. And come November 2022, I hope everyone remembers the complicity of Republicans in particular, and I would argue the Republican Party in general in aiding and abetting the attack on Ukraine. Let's remember more than anything, the reason the first impeachment vote was held. Mm -hmm. It was held because our president at the time, our commander in chief, attempted to withhold sales of critical weapons to Ukraine to in an act of blackmail against Volodymyr Zelensky. Mm -hmm. Olga, what do you make of all the Tucker Carlson? You know, these things are so damaging to have people like Tucker Carlson on our airways, on American airways, being allowed to say these things. Of course, you know, we have the First Amendment, Irvin supports that, but it's just so damaging at the end of the day and so polarizing. 
Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, when you go to like neighboring countries by Russia, you see a lot of this, you know, media personalities on the Kremlin's payroll, politicians on the Kremlin's payroll. In uh, Ukraine's case, Yanukovych was so the president, former treasonous president who is being investigated for treason on the Kremlin's payroll. So it's common here. It, for some reason, because we've never been exposed to it here, you know, it's like very far fetched. But with Tucker, for instance, I mean, I have been calling him an agent of Russia, not in the literal sense of that he's an agent, you know, running and uh, has drop boxes, but that he provides propaganda for the Kremlin. And I saw with him and a few people in the Republican Party that split when Soleimani was killed. Trump and Republicans all lined up behind Trump, you know, so proud that they killed Soleimani. Putin at the time, I mean, Russian media was livid. Putin was livid. He actually went to Syria within two days. And he, you know, they were beyond furious. And you saw Tucker was furious. And you saw Rand Paul was furious. And you saw Mike Lee was furious. And it was like, wow, here they are. (laughs) Sore thumbs sticking out. Instead of toting the Republican line, they are literally repeating the Kremlin talking points. So, I mean, this is my thoughts. I think it's extremely dangerous, you know, and I blame us partially the u.s for not having a more clearer foreign policy with russia explaining that they are an adversary and for too many years russia was you know kind of allowed to have business deals and be involved in this but you know and this i think is where the problem happened but i mean what tucker does laura does and the rest of them it's disgusting i mean imagine that happening during the cold war Mm. zeb I, i think it says everything you need to know that clips of Tucker Carlson play on repeat Mm -hmm. on Russian state TV. By order of the state, there's actually an order uh, saying you have to play Tucker Carlson in your newscasts. I mean, that isn't bizarre enough. I mean, you know, the fact that Tucker Carlson is on prime time in Russia seems insane. (laughs) I mean, it's just, it's unbelievable. Because, you know, Fox and the Republican Party, we should remind everyone, not that long ago, was pretty hawkish on Russia. They were <laughs> very hawkish on Russia. So suddenly this about face is quite remarkable for the Republican Party to do this. What do you think the prognosis is? If you imagine even one week from today, where do you think we're going to be in one week from today, Olga? Well, I have been issuing very dire warnings from the data I'm collecting inside of Russia and from their Russian media, which unfortunately <laughs> I watch morning tonight and monitor. I honestly think, I mean, it's only going to get, the campaign is going to get deadlier. I mean, the images we're seeing are going to be seen more and more frequent. But my main concern is two things. One, that since December, they've been laying the groundwork, and this is from the defense ministry, not conspiracy sites, defense ministry, that, you know, U.S. had brought in chemical weapons. And then over the past few months, they have been making mention that Ukrainians will use chemical weapons on their cities. The second one that's even more concerning with the nuclear issue that, you know, everybody has been discussing, I think people are looking at it the wrong way. I don't see Russia firing nuclear weapons at us, but they're, again, defense ministry, as they have seized 
multiple nuclear plants have been laying the groundwork that Ukrainians have rigged the plants. Mm -hmm. And then they had another talking point that they have evidence that U.S. and Ukraine were preparing dirty bombs. So I worry when Putin cannot handle, you keep asking for an exit strategy, I fear that when he cannot, you know, handle any more loss or the pressure inside his country, that one of these incidents will go off. Chemical weapons we've seen happen in Syria, so that's normal for him. But one of these will go off and it'll give him a cover to for exit because now, you know, Ukraine will be uninhabitable in whatever area they do it and also give him cover for the large Russian uh, losses that people at home are beginning to question. Oh, that's very chilling. Ken, what about you? What do you think is uh, the prognosis looking ahead? Yeah, sadly, I'm inclined to agree with Olga. I think it is going to get worse, much worse, before it gets better, because Putin is someone who cannot conceive of failure, and he will do whatever he thinks he has to, to at least manufacture some semblance of a victory. And that with what he has left means massive artillery barrages, missile strikes, and God forbid, a weapon of mass destruction. Mm -hmm. Wow. I must say, I am very uh, fortified by the fact that Joe Biden is leading this effort. I think uh, so far, at least, he's done a remarkable job in managing what is the most complicated thing you could possibly imagine as having to deal with as a president of the United States. I can't imagine what it would be like with a Donald Trump in the office. I mean, that would be a completely horrific outcome. But I, you know, I think the Biden administration has done a good job so far, and I think the right levers are being applied. Hopefully, through these other countries, that uh, maybe we can see some dramatic changes in, in people like Xi, and and uh, certainly Israel's shift has has been dramatic enough to help move the needle a little bit. Maybe they could step in there, and maybe it is time for Xi and more pressure to be applied on Xi to to step in there and to really. You know, find this moment in his as he enters a third term or what he wants to be a third term. You know, is he going to be the guy who who sinks the world into the dictatorial dark ages that Putin has in mind? Or is he going to, uh, you know, open up the world to a future which is going to be a lot freer and more open? I mean, that really is a, something that he could have an impact on. And I hope there's some uh, pressure applied to him along the way for that. We are out of time. Any last thoughts for either of you? Slava Ukraini. And for me, I first of all want to thank everyone for putting so much attention on Ukraine because that was my biggest fear going into this that, you know, people will be like, oh, it's Ukraine, who cares? I am like overwhelmed by the amount of support that people are giving for Ukraine. And just please keep Ukraine in the news, keep documenting the war crimes because at the end of the day, we need to make sure that every single general, every single military officer and Putin and his whole criminal cronies are held accountable for the war crimes they're committing. Olga Lautman of the Kremlin Files, uh, tell us how people can find you and how they can find your podcast. My uh, work is on the SIPA website and then my podcast is on kremlinfile.com and I'm also on Twitter. Okay. Very loud. And fantastic. It must follow feed. And Ken Harbo of Burn the Boats is the name of the podcast, wherever you get your podcasts, as they say. And I'm on Twitter at team underscore Harbaugh, H-A-R-B-A-U-G-H. I listened to, to the episodes today on Ukraine, really fascinating stuff. And I really encourage everyone to listen to both of these podcasts. They certainly provide lots of insight into the situation. Thank you both for being here tonight. I really appreciate your time. Hopefully we'll have you back here on Narrative in the near future. And to you at home, 
Thank you for being here. Don't forget to support Narrative at patreon.com forward slash narrative. Have a good night, everybody. Narrative is made possible by viewers like you. Join today and support truly independent journalism at patreon.com forward slash narrative. That's patreon.com forward slash narrative.